Welcome. Uh, my name is Jay. If I haven't got a chance to, to meet you yet, I get to pastor this fine group of people. And uh, we, we gather as the church family because we believe that God has made us his family through Jesus. And we get to uh, participate as a family. And so uh, we gather, we call these uh, family gatherings essentially. So because we believe that you don't go to church, but you are the church if you know Christ and you're his bride. So uh, how many of you uh, heard and participated with the, the bells this morning? You heard them? Yeah, at least you heard them. I know some people walked in a little bit late, so you might have missed out on the explanation of those. Um, I'm going to talk about what they were for in a second, but we, we've been going through a series uh, over the last, well, several weeks, really over the summer, and we're going to continue with it through the month of September before starting something new called Invisible Made Visible. And what we're talking about through this series is how God has made His invisible attributes visible through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes on the scene and He goes, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And what He's saying is, you want to know what He's like. If you want to know what God is all about and, and His character, who He is, look at Me. And so what we've been doing is looking at Jesus and who He is. And every week we've taken a different attribute of Christ and kind of you know, examine that little piece. And the point of all this, I was talking to somebody about this, the point that we're doing all this is because we believe that we're called to be on mission with Jesus in the world. We're called to be people who demonstrate what He's like by the way that we live and then speak about who He is and what He's done in our lives when we get the opportunity, when somebody asks us to give a reason for the hope that's within us. But here's the thing, if, if you're not in like deeply in love with Jesus, then mission for you will be just another obligation. It's going to be something else that you add on to your task list, or your to-do list, something I need to do today, or, or it's going to have that impression to you. But if you fall in love with this Jesus, if He is your life, as we sang about this morning, if He is the center of who you are, then out of that flows mission. You can't help but talk about the one that you love. Those of you who have been engaged, and I've gotten a chance to talk with you, you, you talk about the one you're engaged to constantly, right? It's like, okay, I've heard enough. Like, you know, let's move on to a different subject. But that's what you do when you're in love with something. And so it's really been my prayer that as we've gone through the series that you've fallen more and more in love with Him. Today is kind of the, the, the big piece of that because we're actually talking about Jesus as the bridegroom that He is the, the, the bridegroom of the church. That's what the bells were all about this morning. Because essentially, you and I are gathered as a wedding celebration between Jesus and His church. So you may not have realized that that's what you were doing this morning. You probably thought you were coming to church. And really, you're at a, a, a wedding celebration. So hopefully you dress for the occasion, as I have. 
and, uh, and we'll be good to go. It's funny because uh, this weekend I actually got to participate in two weddings, one yesterday and one today, and it dawned on me that that was the case. And I w- it wasn't my plan to line them up that way, but it just sort of happened. The one yesterday was between a man and a woman, and the one today is between the Son of God and His bride called the church. And here's the thing, I'm actually just as excited for this morning's gathering and celebration as I am for yesterday's because it is the wedding of the ages that we get to be part of. You may not realize that, but I hope that as we go through this this morning, you'll actually begin to believe that, that you would begin to see yourself almost as a bride getting ready for her wedding day. So we dialogue a lot here at Cultivate, so let me ask you, what is typically or often going through the mind and the heart of a bride as she's about to get married? Lose weight. <laughs> well, I mean, in kind of, yeah, in sort of a getting prepared to receive the groom, right? Wanting to, to be in a, in a state of, of being ready to receive him. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, right? What else? Yeah, yeah. there's planning and process going into that, anticipating what the day is going to be like, how it's all going to come together. And as you do that, what's going to happen in your heart? I mean, what's going on in your hearts? You're getting excited, right? You're thinking, man, I'm just counting down the hours and the days until that happens. What else? Yeah. Com- yeah, so you're thinking over the commitment that you're about to make and and maybe asking God and praying for Him to allow you to be faithful, to live out that commitment. Praying that your spouse does the same thing. Yeah. What else? Yeah, a little nervous, right? Some nerves going on. Um, on, on all kinds of levels, right? Anything else? Come on, you brides. You, you, fill us men in, okay, on what this is like. We need your help. Yeah, right. <laughs> is my groom capable of getting himself ready? And has he selected the right groomsman to like do the job well and you know make sure he shows up on time and he's got the haircut and the tux is on right and it's tied in the right way and you know nothing's on his face or what <laughs> Yeah. See everything that you just described is actually what happens to us when we understand Jesus as our bridegroom. So the the more that we see Him that way, the more we in our hearts and our minds should be posturing ourselves almost almost like a bride on her wedding day or just before her wedding day. The anticipation is rising. The excitement level is rising. The hope of what life is going to look like once the two are united. All of that kind of coming to the surface. And so we need to kind of get a picture of what it looks like for Jesus to be our bridegroom in order for all that stuff to happen. So so where do we start? Well, in John 3, uh, the first person to talk about Jesus as the bridegroom is John the Baptist. And he's been baptizing people uh, in the Jordan River. And now Jesus comes on the scene and he starts baptizing people in the very same river. And some of his disciples aren't too keen on that. They're like, Where's this Jesus guy coming from? He's doing the same thing that you're doing. And so they go and report back to John what they've seen. So they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, 
This man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone's starting to go to him. To this John replied, a man can only receive what is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. And here's the key part. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is now mine. And it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. So you hear that heart of John going, I've been doing this in anticipation of the bridegroom, and now that he's on the scene, people need to go to him because we're all his bride, and, and it's not about me, it's about him. So I'm going to come, become less. He's going to become more. Jesus also refers to himself as the bridegroom in Matthew 9 when he's questioned by some of John's disciples and other people about why his disciples don't fast, why they don't refrain from food, because this was a common custom in Judaism. And Jesus answers this way, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. And so this idea of Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being his bride is all over the place. One, one of the uh, most often places that we go to, you've probably heard it uh, quoted and gone through at a, at a wedding celebration is in Ephesians 5. We tend to think of it as a wedding verse, right? We tend to think of it as instructions for the husband and the wife in terms of how they're to relate to one another. But it's actually describing Jesus and the way that He's in relationship with His church. And so it says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the Word to present to her, to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then He goes on to say this, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, the mystery that Paul's talking about is Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being His bride. And so, welcome, church, to the, the union of His people to the, the Son of Glory. So this is what we're celebrating today. It's the royal wedding of the ages. See, and you just thought you were coming to a building, right, to hear some music and some teaching. You're here for an entirely different purpose than that. So to understand all of this with Jesus as being the bridegroom, we need to understand why this title was given to Him and what all of that means. See, if you were Jewish in the, in the first century, when Jesus comes on the scene and He says, I'm the bridegroom, you would have known exactly what He meant by that. But here's the thing, because we're removed from that context, uh, it's important for us to kind of reconstruct a wedding process in the first century in order to see how it is that Jesus walks out all these various things. It's going to be pretty cool. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through kind of the, the Jewish wedding process and then we're going to go back through it and show how Jesus kind of comes through and fulfills every single piece of it. So, so how does this all work? Well, if two people were going to be married, it started this way with the selection of the bride. So the father of the bridegroom actually selected the bride for his son. And so what would happen is 
he'd have a son who's ready to be married, and the son would, you know, be waiting around for his father to decide when that time was right. And the father would say, okay, it's time for you to be married. Let's go out and search for uh, for a bride for you. And so either the father would do it himself or he would send out a trusted servant to go and find a bride for him. And we actually see examples of this throughout Scripture. If you look through the book of Genesis, you see this kind of over and over and over again. So once a bride was selected, then a price was arranged that the bridegroom's family would pay to the bride's family in exchange for their daughter. This was called a bride price. And so I, I know this sounds primitive and kind of like you're, you're treating your daughter like cattle, but there was, a, there was an immense worth to daughters within their families. And so to give one up for a husband meant that there needed to be something in return to the family. And so they would exchange uh, and talk about and agree upon a specific price that would be paid from the daughter's family to the 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 son's family. After the price was agreed upon, a covenant would be written up between the two families called a ketubah. And this was a betrothal contract that outlines the bride price and it also gives all of the rights and the responsibilities of the groom in relation to the bride. So it, it was all the things that he needed to live up to to make this covenant work. And so there needed to be agreements like how, how are you going to provide food for her? How are you going to provide clothing? Where are you going to live together with your bride? How, how is this all going to work? How are you going to be the provision in her life? Because she's no longer going to be under the authority of her family. She's now going to be under your authority. And in order for that to happen, we need to know that it's going to go well for her. And so this contract, this ketubah, became the inalienable rights of the bride. So in a male-dominated culture where oftentimes women were like mistreated and left aside and abused, this protected the woman and gave her an incredible protection, right? So after, after this was written up, a time came for the bride to accept her bridegroom. Up until this point, all of the talking and the negotiating and everything was between the two families of the bride and the potential, or the potential bride and the groom. And now they would throw a party for the two of them. And at that party between the two families, a cup would be served. And this was called the Cup of the Covenant. And so the groom would take the Cup of the Covenant and he would drink from it. It was called the Kaddush, the Cup of the Covenant. And after he drank from it, he would give it to the bride. And if she drank from it, it was her way of saying, I accept you as my groom. The two of us will be united together. It was her way of saying, I do. Prior to sipping the cup, this is the interesting part, she would give no indications of her feeling towards the groom. She wouldn't say a word. So they would throw this party and they would all get together. And I mean, can you imagine being the groom in this situation? Your hand's like shaking, you know, like. You're, you're just hoping beyond hope that she's going to take this goblet from you and actually accept you as, as her one and only betrothed, right? Up until that point, you have no indication of, of how she's going to respond. And when she puts the cup to her mouth and drinks from it, she's saying, I accept you. I, I will live with you. I will be yours. It's funny because it's the same cup, actually, that they use to celebrate at the Passover. It's the first of the five cups, the cup of the covenant. And it sealed the deal between the two. 
And then the final part of, a covenant pro- of the proposal process was once the, the deal was sealed, then the final part was that uh, they would give, the, the groom would give gifts to the bride. So the bridegroom would come and bring a gift for his new bride, something that was immense worth that would try to win her heart over and show just how committed he is to her. Like gold or jewelry or maybe something for, for the family. What do we most often give grooms to, to brides as a symbol of our affection when we want to marry someone? Yeah, a ring, right? Um, I, I remember when I was in the process of uh, of getting to, well, before being proposed or engaged to Mandy, um, wanting to buy a ring for her. And I remember at that point, she was finishing up uh, her schooling, and uh, and I was like, I, I'd really love to, to marry this girl, and I, I want to start a life with her. And I remember praying through this, because I had been a, a missionary with a campus ministry for two years. So I had like, you know, two nickels to rub together. It was like, that, that was... So my bank account rarely rose above $500, and then when it did, it was like immediately going all towards bills, you know? So, so I'm thinking, uh, like, I want to give her a gift. I want to buy her a ring, but I have absolutely no ability to do it. And so I remember praying, like, God, I, I need you to provide for me here because I don't, I don't see the way this is all going to work out. And, and then shortly after that, I remember my church had, uh, I'd been participating with my church and doing a ministry uh, outreach and uh, I wasn't expecting it at the time, but as part of that outreach, they said, you, you know, you've done such a great job of blessing us and, and being used. We'd like to give you a gift. And so they handed me a, a, an envelope. I was like, okay, what, whatever. So I, I left in, like, in the car, you know, tearing through the thing just to see what it was. And here it was a gift of $2,000. I had never seen that much money in like, you know, 10 years. And, and here it is in a check form, you know, sitting in front of me. It was like God was in the car with me going, ta-da! You know, like. <laughs> so I went and bought that ring and, uh, and gave it to Mandy, and, and uh, we got engaged and married the next year. So once that process is complete, the man and the woman are now betrothed to one another. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but betrothal is different from what we know of as engagement. Because engagement is really just an intent to marry someone, right? You buy an expensive ring, you give it to them, and then you say, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we got married next year or in six months or, or whatever? But betrothal was different. That was, betrothal was a sealed covenant between two families. It was a done deal. And so the only way to call off a betrothal once that process had happened was through a public divorce. They're, they're joined together, essentially. And so... After the proposal process was done, sometime between the betrothal and the actual wedding ceremony, the bride would go and take what's, what was called a mikvah. It was a ceremonial cleansing. We think of it as baptism. And it, this symbolized for her a break from her former way of life to a whole new way of life. So she was breaking from mom and dad and, and, and her life with them to a new life with her bridegroom, her new husband. And at this point, the bride was considered joined to the groom and under his authority for the rest of her life. It was a break from the past. After that, she would go back to her home and wait for the groom's return. They wouldn't live together at this point. She could be waiting for months or even up to a year for his return. And so you think, okay, well, what's the guy doing 
Is he like sowing his oats? Is he like, you know, is he out partying or, or just, you know, what's going on here? Well, the bridegroom would go back to his father's house and prepare a place for her. So he would go to, to his dad's house and he would con- oftentimes construct a room or a wing uh, onto his father's house for the two of them to live. Sometimes it was referred to as a bridal chamber. And that, that was going to be the place that the two of them lived. But before he would go, before he would leave his bride, the bridegroom would often say to her, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will return unto you. Does that sound familiar? So the whole time he's away, the bridegroom is building a place for them to live, getting everything ready for the ceremony. But one thing was necessary in order for that process to be completed so the bridegroom could come back and get his bride. And that was that the bridegroom needed his father's approval over the whole thing to say, okay, it's time. Go get her. So it was the father who was looking over everything and all the preparations, making sure it was ready for the big day. And only once he got his approval could the son go and get the bride. And the bridegroom didn't know actually when that day would happen. It was all in the father's hands. He's the one that knew. So meanwhile, can you imagine, right, while he's off doing this and, and you know, getting into all this heavy construction, the, the bride is waiting for her bridegroom eagerly. Think of it. I mean, he could come at any time, right? I mean, after the first few days or so, once you kind of got over the initial process, she would be waiting, probably dressed in her, her wedding clothes each and every day, anticipating that today might be the day. I I wonder if today will be the day that I get to see him. Is he really coming? Will he keep his promise? Will I get to see him today? As she would have been waiting and watching with such great anticipation. And once the father gave approval, the bridegroom and his friends, all of his buddies, would get together and then they would go through the town to her house And one of his friends would shout upon arrival to the home, Behold, the bridegroom comes. He's here. And usually they would blow a horn to announce his arrival. They didn't do that yesterday. I'm not sure why. Um, Maybe you might want to try it in your own ceremony, right? They would blow a horn to announce that he was there. And then together, once they were joined, they would walk back to the father's house, usually taking the longest route possible so that people could come out of their houses and rejoice that the bride and the groom were united together. The whole town would celebrate this joining of the bridegroom and the bride. And then once they returned to his father's home, together with all their friends and their family, they would celebrate for seven straight days. I mean, that's a party, right? Can you imagine pre- like preparing for seven straight days? I was exhausted at the end of one day with, with, our, you know, with, with our wedding ceremony. Seven days straight of just celebrating and, and, and rejoicing that this had happened. So this was the traditional Jewish wedding process. Pretty elaborate, right? So how many of you wish that this was part of your own like tradition? You know, one hand, right? not so much huh but here's the thing that we need to see jesus as the bridegroom actually comes and fulfills every aspect of this process beautifully 
And, and what you need to know is that if you're a follower in Jesus, your life is actually wrapped up in this story in a way that you couldn't even imagine. This story, this process, is actually the process by which Jesus has come and claimed you as His bride if you're His. It's pretty cool. And so my hope really is that as you hear this and what He's done for you and how He's moved through this process, that as His bride, you'd fall in love with Him and you'd go, I'm, I'm committed to you all over again. So let's look at the process, okay? First was the selection of the bride. Just as the bride had to be chosen by the Father, so we are chosen by the Father to be engaged to Jesus. So there is nothing that we actually do to make that choice or prompt God to do that for us. It's the Father that chooses the bride for Jesus. So we see this when Jesus says this in John 6. No one can come to me unless who? The Father has sent, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will rise him, raise him up on the last day. Ephesians 1 starts out this way. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For He what? He chose us. In Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Do you realize that the Father has chosen you? Since before the creation of the world, He knew you and has been drawing you to be united to His Son, Jesus. That's incredible, right? None of us have ever actually chosen God on our own. The Bible says we, it's the Father who's done the choosing and brings us into relationship with His Son. You know what that should do for us? That should make us pretty humble as a bride, right? To know that it wasn't us that, that wooed our groom to us, but that it was Jesus who had come and selected us with His Father's approval. God chooses and He pursues us to be united to Him. What was next in the process after the choosing of the bride? Do you remember? Yeah, a covenant was set with a, with a bride price. So you may not realize this, but our bridegroom paid a very, very high price to make us His. The price that He paid was His own life. And Jesus considered the price that was required for us before He came to retrieve us. He knew exactly what it would cost Him in order to make us His bride. Remember that on the night before Jesus was crucified, He and His disciples had just finished having the Last Supper together and then they traveled to this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, Jesus kind of went away from His disciples to pray to His Father and he's in the middle of counting the cost of what it's going to take in order to woo his bride to himself. And in Matthew 26, 29, it says this, He fell on his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus is saying, Father, I know that you've chosen this bride for me. She's going to cost me everything. So if there is any other price that can be paid, please let that be the cost instead. But, if this is the price that it will take to win me this bride, then I will pay it. I will lay down my life. I will go to the cross for her. 
And he does, right? The next day, he goes and he picks up a cross and he dies for our sin in our place to make us new so that in him we could be united. It's amazing, right? 1 Peter uh, 1 says this, For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. What was the price that that the bride price that needed to be paid in order for us to come into relationship with God? It was the blood of His Son to purify us from sin so that in Him we'd be clean and whole and new and righteous and be able to be in relationship with this God who is holy and always does what is good, right, and perfect. That's what it cost Him. That was the bride price. And here's the thing. We only know how precious we are as the bride when we see how valuable we are in the eyes of our bridegroom. When we fully realize the price that He was willing to pay to purchase us for Himself, we have no option but to walk away and go, man, I have incredible worth. I'm valued and loved beyond my wildest imagination. Because look what He was willing to pay. This is a a great story, actually, I want to read to you that kind of illustrates this. So, bear with me, but I think you'll understand why as we we go through, okay? It's going to illustrate this whole thing. Johnny Lingo is known throughout the islands for his skill, intelligence, and savvy. He's one of the best traders on the island. He'll get the best deals every time. The people of Kinawana all speak highly of Johnny Lingo. Yet, when they speak of him, they always smile a little mockingly. Get Johnny to help you find what you want and then let him do the bargaining, advised the manager as I sat on the veranda of his guest house. He'll earn his commission four times over. Johnny knows how to make a great deal. Johnny Lingo. The teenage boy in the veranda steps hooted his name, then hugged his knees and rocked with shrill laughter. What's going on, I demanded. Everybody here tells me to get in touch with this Johnny Lingo, and then they start laughing. Is it some kind of trick, like sending someone for a left-handed wrench? Is there no such person, or is he the village idiot? Let me in on the joke. He's no idiot. Johnny is the brightest and richest young man on the islands, the manager said. Only one thing. Five months ago at the fall festival, Johnny came to Kinawana and found himself a wife. He paid eight cows for her. I know enough about island customs to be thoroughly impressed. Two or three cows would buy a fair wife. Four or five, a very nice one. Wow, eight cows, I said. She must have been a beauty that takes your breath away. Well, that's why they laugh, he said. It would be kind to call her plain. She was little and skinny and walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked as if she was trying to hide behind herself. Her cheeks had no color and her hair was in a tangled mop half over her face. She was scared of her own shadow and was afraid to laugh in public. Her father, Sam Carew, was afraid that he would never be able to marry her off, but he got eight cows. I guess there's no accounting for love. True enough, replied the manager, but that's why the villagers smile when they hear about Johnny. They get satisfaction knowing that the best trader on the islands was bested by dull old Sam Carew. But how? No one knows and everyone wonders. 
All the cousins urged Sam to ask for three cows and hold out for two until they were sure that Johnny would only pay one. To their surprise, Johnny came into the tent and without waiting for from a word for any of them, went straight up to Sam Carew, grasped him by the hand and said, Father of Sarita, I offer eight cows for your daughter. And he delivered the cows the very next day. The story was so intriguing that I decided I needed to investigate. The next day I reached the island where Johnny lived. And when I met the slim, serious young man, he welcomed me into his home with a grace that made me feel like the owner. I could see immediately why everyone respected him the way that they did. And as we sat in his house, I told him that his people had told me about him. They speak well of me on the island? He asked. Yes. But what do they say? They say you're the sharp trader and that if I need anything, you're the man that I should see. Johnny smiled softly. They say anything else? They, they also say the marriage settlement that you made with your wife was eight cows. I paused, then went on, coming as close to a direct question as I could. They wonder why. They ask that? His eyes lighted with pleasure. Everyone in Kinawana knows about the eight cows? I nodded. His chest expanded with satisfaction. Always and forever, when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for Sarita. So that's the answer, I thought, with disappointment. Vanity. It's not enough for his ego to be known as the smartest and the richest. He has to make himself famous for the way that he buys a wife, too. I was tempted to deflate him by reporting to him that he was laughed at for a fool. Just then, a woman entered the room and placed a bowl of blossoms on the dining table. She stood still a moment to smile sweetly with a gravity that I've never seen before at the young man beside me, then left. She was the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. She was utterly lovely. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eye all spelled confidence and pride. Not an arrogant pride, but an inner beauty that radiated with her every move. When she was out of sight, I turned back to Johnny Lingo and found him looking at me. You admire her, he said. She, she's gorgeous. This cannot be the one that everyone talks about in Kinawana. There's only one Sarita. His way of saying the words gave them a special significance. Perhaps she doesn't look the way that you expected her to. She doesn't. I heard she was homely. They all make fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by Sam Carew. You think eight cows were too many? A slow smile slid over his lips as I shook my head. But how could she be so different from the way they all described her? He asked reflectively, Think of what it must do to a woman when she knows the price her husband paid is the lowest for which she could be bought. It must be insulting to know her husband places such little value on her. Think of how she must feel when other women boast of what their husbands paid for them. It must be embarrassing for her. I could not let this happen to my Sarita. Then you paid eight cows just to make your wife happy. I wanted Sarita to be happy, yes. But I wanted more than that. You say she's different from the way they remember her in Kinawada. This is true. Many things can change a woman. Things that happen on the inside, things that happen on the outside. But the thing that matters the most is the way that she views herself. 
how valuable she thinks she is. In Kinawata, Sarita believed that she was worth nothing. As a result, that's the value that she projected to everyone else. Now she knows that she is worth more than any other woman on the islands. It shows, doesn't it? You, then you wanted, I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman. But, he finished softly, I wanted an eight-cow wife. What an awesome picture, right? Of Jesus and what he thinks of his bride when he looks at us. And he's going, you are worth more to me than you know. And, and as we're walking around life going, I, I don't know if I'm worth anything because nobody treats me that way and nobody thinks of me that way. Please know that the bridegroom of heaven looks down and sees you and says, you are worth far more than any other woman on the island. And I'm willing to pay the price to show you just how valuable you are and how much I love you and want you to be with me. He wants us to know the worth that, that, that we have and just how much he's willing to pay. Next, if you remember that gifts were given to the bride. And uh, we often give gifts, right, when it comes to, to uh, exchanging those things. We talked about the rings. The primary gift that Jesus gives to his bride is the Holy Spirit. And, and along with him comes all, all the gifts of the Spirit. Along with Him comes love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, that's a pretty good gift, right, when it comes to marriages? I've got a set of pans for my wedding day, and uh, I've been married for seven years, and they're wearing out already, right? Mandy, in fact, this summer, Mandy and I had to buy new pans because those are wearing out. The gift that Jesus gives to us as part of the wedding, they never wear out. Because it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in, in 2 Corinthians 1. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm. He anointed us and set His seal of ownership on us and put His Spirit into our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Acts 2, Peter is talking to the crowd and he says this, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus' gift to His bride. And you think, okay, well, why the Spirit? What is it about the Spirit and why is He given? You may not know this, but it's actually the Spirit that helps us walk out our marriage covenant to Jesus. He's the one who makes us stand firm when we're tempted to stray from our bride. He's the one who reminds us of all the covenant promises of our bridegroom and says they're true and they're right for you and I'm speaking them into your life. Don't forget them. And so when we gather with other believers to remember the, the bridegroom or when we open our Bibles and read the Word of God, it's the Spirit that's bringing those things alive and going, don't forget and be faithful and walk with me. It's the Spirit that does all that. Reminds us that we belong to Him. Next, we see the betrothal of the bride to the bridegroom. Just like in Jewish customs, the bridegroom to his bride, God betrothed Himself to His people. And He's done this over and over again, but the picture that we see is that God has been 
marrying himself to his people since the very beginning. In Hosea 2, he says this, I will betroth myself to you forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth myself to you in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. Fast forward into the New Testament, and Paul says this, uh, speaking on behalf on behalf of God, I am a jealous God, or I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, he's speaking to the church, to Christ, so that you may, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. He's our bridegroom. And Jesus has been extending this offer to us to betroth himself to us in marriage. And if we accept and agree to walk with Jesus and spend the rest of our life with Him as our Savior and our Lord, with Him as our bridegroom, then we've become wedded to Christ. This picture of marriage is actually how God has always intended for us to be with Him. To walk closely with Him. To live our lives under His care and His protection. Next, if you remember, there's the baptism of the bride, right? Just as the bride was baptized between her betrothal and her wedding day, we're also to be baptized as a sign that we've broken from a former way of life and are, and are now living under a new authority that's Christ. It's a public declaration for us to say, I am no longer my own. I don't belong to me anymore. I belong to Him. And because I belong to Jesus, He is my everything and I trust Him for life. Jesus Himself, He gives us this command before He leaves this earth. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, that, that baptism is a, a way to break from it. That's why it's important for us, if we're His, to be baptized. It's to declare our betrothal to Him. So we're going to be doing it again this fall in November. And if you haven't been baptized yet, please come and talk to us about that because it's an important step. It represents the truth of who you are as a bride, that God has made you new and that you want to walk in that newness of life. Lastly, what we see is that the bridegroom went and prepared a place for his bride, right? In John 14.1, Jesus says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. You see the, the same words, right? The same picture. At the same time, we see that the Father's approval was necessary because he said, Jesus goes on and says this in Mark 13, Speaking of the day when He comes to retrieve His bride, no one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard. Put on your wedding clothes, right? And be ready for that day. Be alert. Because you don't know when that time is coming. So just like a bride who is waiting and watching with others for the bridegroom to return, so we're to be waiting and watching ready for our bridegroom's return. Because a day is going to come when He comes for us. When He comes for you. And we don't know when that day will be. So let me ask this. 
Do we live in great anticipation of our bridegroom's arrival? Do we live this way? And I'd love to hear some responses on this, but what would it look like for us to, for us as the bride to be awaiting Jesus' return? What would that look like? What would we be doing? What do you think? Think of a bride on her wedding day. What's that? Yeah, we'd be aware of how we're living. What, what kind of life would we want to be living? Try to avoid sin. Yeah. But why is that? Yeah, yeah. Hey, you'd be wanting to make yourself ready to receive your groom, right? And, and and you'd be living in such a way where you go, all sin is rebellion from God, it's rebellion from my bridegroom, and I don't want to be a rebellious bride because my bridegroom has been so good to me. He, he has always protected me, always cared for me. He will come back. He will return for me. Therefore, I want to be ready in my heart, in my mind, in my hands to receive my groom, right? Now, how else? We'd want others to know about the bridegroom, right? Yeah, we'd live our lives trying to show the value that Jesus has placed on them, right? If you know that there is one who values you when you once thought you were worth nothing. And you knew that that same person gives value to all others who consider themselves worthless. How would you view talking about your bridegroom? Yeah, right? Yeah, you'd go everywhere and you go, don't you know how valued you are, Right? So talking about Jesus, it wouldn't be like an obligation or this weird thing where you're going, oh, I don't know if they want to hear it or not. You know, They might reject me. No, you'd be going, here's who I was. Here's who Jesus told me I am and made me to be. And He's coming back for me. And I want you to know that He sees you the same way that He sees me. I mean, wouldn't we live our lives that way out of joy of what God has done in us? It wouldn't be some obligation. We'd want to know, we'd want others to know how much they're loved, even if they're not, even if they don't feel loved, right? Yeah, what else? That's a great way to put it. Do you guys hear that? On your like when you're anticipating your wedding day, that is what you're living for, waiting for, putting your hope in. So you don't wake up that morning going, "Oh man, I got to go to the grocery store today." <laughs> you know? Think of all the obligations and all the the trials that I'm going to have today. No, you'd be thinking past all those trials. I mean, when you're going up to your wedding day, that's like the most stressful season of your life. Have you ever experienced that? 
But your capacity for stress is so much greater than at any other point in your life. Why is that? Because you're not looking at the stress, right? Yeah, you're looking past the stress to the day and you're going, all of these trials, all of these things that I'm experiencing, they will all be worth it because I will stand before my groom and we will be united together forever. And so you put up with a whole lot, right? So in the same way, I think we, we would be people who place our hope in that day and not in today. We wouldn't get up and go, man, I hope my circumstances are good today because if they're not, I may not make it today. If our hope was really in that day, we'd wake up and go, Father, I don't know what's planned for me today, but I know whatever it is, You will overcome it. You will overcome it. Because if You were powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead and powerful enough to have Him return to retrieve me, His bride, You are powerful enough to get me through whatever crap I have to deal with today. And you'd believe it. And when you don't believe it, hopefully, like a bride, you'd have other people around you going, remember! Right? No bride waits for her bridegroom by herself. Isn't that weird? Like, I've been to a bunch of weddings. I've never seen a bride waiting for her bridegroom by herself. She's always got people attending her, right? And, go, and making her look the, the best possible way that she can and reminding her of what's to come and being there for her. In the same way, one of the primary gifts that God gives us is the family of God. It's the church to be for one another that reminder. Don't forget Jesus' faithfulness. He's a faithful bridegroom. He's going to return. He's going to come for us, right? Make yourself ready. I was, remember, I was talking to uh, in our DNA group, Discipleship, Nurture, Accountability, um, with the other guys that, that I do that with, with Andrew and Kyle. And Kyle was reminding us, like, this, you know, we talk a lot about, like, helping one another overcome the sin in our lives and, like, being accountable not to, like, fall into areas, of, uh, you know, that we tend to fall into. He goes, but... I don't know about you guys, but I need just as much somebody to remind me of God's faithfulness and His grace being poured out in my life. Like so, so whenever you see evidences of God's grace in me, tell me about it, right? Like let me know. Here's how I see you living out your identity with Jesus, and it's good. You're making yourself ready, and God's working in your heart, right? Do we do that with one another? See, there's all kinds of things that we would do, right, to posture ourselves. Do we realize that we're being wrapped up into a huge wedding ceremony when you become a follower of Jesus? And do you realize now that Jesus sees you as His beautiful bride? There's one thing that I skipped over. We're going to end with this. Um, in the, the process of, of marriage in, in Judaism, and that's the cup of the covenant, Right? Each week when we gather, we celebrate the cup of the covenant when we take communion together. And so Jesus spoke these words when He talked about this in Matthew 26. He says, Then He took the cup, He gave thanks, and offered it to Him, saying, Drink it, all of you. My bride, drink this. Do you hear His heart? He's sitting there as a groom with the cup, drinking from it, saying, It's for you. 
Will you be joined to me? My bride, drink from it. This is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. See, a new marriage covenant is being offered and it's sealed with Jesus' own blood. And so this is the cup that we drink from, the, the Kiddush, the covenant cup, when we take communion together. It's celebrating a consummation of this marriage proposal between Jesus and us, His bride. And so every time we come together, that's why we celebrate it. And so when you come forward and you take the, the bread which symbolizes His body and you dip it in the, the juice that symbolizes His blood, what you're doing is you're saying again, yes, Lord, I accept again Your marriage proposal. I accept the price that You paid in my place to purchase me for Yourself. This is what we're doing. And so for many of us, we've said I do. For others, this may, we, we may kind of be still figuring this out. You need to know that there is a great bridegroom who loves his bride and that you were chosen for him before the beginning of the world. And so I encourage you if, you, if you've heard the Spirit talking to you today and saying this is for you, if God is saying that to you, then participate today. Come and, and, and drink from the cup and accept his offer. And if you're his, then, well, then this is like a, a, a recommitment ceremony, right? Like redoing your vows. Because every time that we're doing this, we're saying yes again. I'd marry you all over again, Jesus. So let's come and do that together. It's my prayer and my hope, really, that, that we would set our affections on this bridegroom, that he would become our everything, and that we would re-celebrate that again today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You chose us for Your Son. And I think of all the, uh, all the things that we often give our hearts away to to find meaning and acceptance and love. All the people and all the things that we look to to know that we're valued. And here, you stand before us with the King of the universe. And you say, this is my Son, and I have chosen you to be His bride. God, let us, let us not want for anything but Him. Help us to rest in the price that was paid for us and to know that it is finished and complete and that we as Your bride, we don't need to be waiting with fear, wondering if You're going to condemn us when You come, but You're going to come and shower love and grace upon us when You're with Your bride. Help us to know that, to love that, rest in it, and then anticipate the day that You come to claim Your bride for Your own. Help us to hope in that day so that we don't get distracted by all the days that we have to live through between now and then. And I pray, God, that as we celebrate again, we'd hear You say to us, You're mine. And that we would say back to You, I'd marry you all over again, Jesus. You are the best possible one for me. I love you. Amen.